Good morning again. It is uh, such a gift that we have God's Word in our own language, uh, that we ha- have Scripture in English, and we can read it and understand it, hear it preached, what a gift that is. Uh, there are still thousands of languages around the world that have not yet uh, had a single verse of the Bible translated into them. So um, just as we get into the Word together this morning, and as we hear from it, remember what a blessing that is, remember what a gift that is. Let's be good stewards of that, be so thankful for it, and let's pray that the Lord would continue to send people um, and do his work so that his word will be translated into the remaining languages um, in the world. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you have spoken and that we can know the truth. We can know your word, Lord. I pray that we would listen carefully and that you would bear fruit in each of us today, Lord. Uh, give us grace to uh, listen and to have hearts that are fertile soil for your word, Lord. And please bear fruit um, in each of us today. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past couple of years now, um, we as believers in the West have probably started talking more about persecution. I've started thinking more about the fact that we are a distinct people as uh, believers in Christ, as, as believers, and that the world around us doesn't like uh, our faith, doesn't like the gospel. And more and more this has become evident Whereas perhaps a generation ago and longer ago, that distinction between the world and the church wasn't as evident in daily life. It always should be clear. It always has been a clear distinction between those who are believers and those who aren't. And yet at the same time, that difference has become more and more evident, I think, over the past generation here in the States and in the West. So we've started to think more about what does it mean for us to be ready for and to face persecution as believers. What does it mean for us to uh, respond to that rightly and to think about it rightly? To know how do we think about persecution, what does it mean, and how do we respond to it in the way that Scripture teaches us to do that? So persecution is no longer something that we think about as just overseas, but it could be here as well. And so we want to be ready for that and know how do we handle it and how how do we respond rightly to persecution when it comes. So let's look together at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. James chapter 5, 7 through 11, and James is going to answer that question for us. What does it mean for us to face persecution? How do we persevere and endure and remain steadfast when we, are, when we suffer for our faith and for our profession of faith? So James 5, 7 through 11, it says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James starts off by saying, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And that word, therefore, should always indicate to us that we need to go back. We need to see why is James telling us that we need to be patient until the Lord's coming. What is it about Jesus' coming that helps us be patient? And why, would, why do we need to be patient in the first place? Well, I think that, therefore, is sending us back to verses 1 through 6. I'll read those for us as well. In James 5, verse 1, James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So James here in this passage, verses 1 through 6, is condemning and calling out these rich oppressors of the poor these rich people who are oppressing the poor and withholding their wages from them and who are going to be judged on the last day for their sin. And I think we can say confidently that James is not speaking to believers in verses 1 through 6. He's speaking to unbelievers who are oppressing and uh, persecuting other believers, the believers that James is writing to. Why do we know that? Well, for one, because throughout the letter of James, he always refers to his hearers, to the people he's writing to, as my brothers, my beloved brothers. He writes to them as his fellow believers in Christ, and he wants to uh, encourage them, and he constantly refers to them as my brothers, my dear brothers, my beloved brothers. But that phrase doesn't show up at all in verses 1 through 6. And also, in these uh, these verses, James uh, makes it clear that these people will be judged for their sin. He's calling down really condemnation on them. And so James is speaking to unbelieving uh, persecutors and oppressors of believers, the believers he's writing to. But that sounds strange, doesn't it, that James would write to and speak so strongly against unbelievers who are persecuting um, believers he's writing to, because are they ever going to hear what James has said? Are they ever going to read what he's written if they're not believers? I think what James is doing is the same kind of thing that a lot of the Old Testament prophets did when, say, for example, Isaiah gave a lot of prophecies and spoke against different nations that were around Israel. When he spoke against, say, Assyria or Babylon or Edom or all these other nations, he spoke and prophesied that they would be judged and they would be, um, they would be brought to justice for their sins and for the evil that they had committed. And yet, I don't think Isaiah was assuming that those other nations were going to hear those condemnations, were going to hear those pronouncements. Isaiah's prophecies were for God's people. They were for the people of God to be encouraged and built up and remember that justice is coming. That even though they were being oppressed, for example, by the Assyrians, or even though they knew that the Babylonians were going to come and uh, bring judgment upon them as well, they knew that God was faithful. They knew that God was going to bring about perfect justice and righteousness in the end, and they didn't need to worry. I think that's the same thing that James is doing here. He's saying, I know, brothers and sisters, that you are suffering because of your profession of faith. I know that those who are rich those who are powerful, are bringing about difficulties on your lives, that you're suffering injustice because of your faith. And yet, I want you to know that Jesus is coming back, that justice is coming, that when Christ comes, he's going to make all things right, and you don't need to worry. Know that Christ is coming back, and so you can be patient. Even when it feels like things are wrong, things are unfair, things are unjust, and they are, remember, Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, he will make all things right. That's what James is telling uh, his, his hearers today. That's what he's telling us. That when we face persecution, we need to remember Christ is coming back and he's going to make all things right. And so we can be patient even as we suffer in the meantime. Now, we might not in the West suffer from those who are rich necessarily, but I think more and more there is uh, the possibility of persecution and suffering from those who have power, some kind of uh, influence in society, some kind of cultural power. So that when, if you are, for example, an employee in a company and you're being pressured to use certain terminology 
or to accept certain lifestyles that you know are against what Scripture teaches. There's pressure that you're receiving from those who are in power, those who have cultural influence and power in society. And there's pressure coming against you, just like the rich who are pressing the believers James is writing to. Or if you're a student and you are facing uh, pressure from other fellow students or they feel like you're hateful or the, you're backwards or something, any kinds of the, any, any things like that, the, those who have influence and power in society are in some sense persecuting you and causing you to suffer for your faith. I think of our brothers and sisters in North Africa, so many of whom suffer so much for the gospel, whether it's suffering from their uh, family members, uh, whether it's suffering from people in community in the community where they live, whether it's from the authorities themselves. I think of one brother who's in his 60s. He's a faithful proclaimer of the gospel, a faithful witness. He uh, passes out Bibles all the time. We always see him walking around with a big sack. He's always got a Bible in hand. And in a place where it's mostly um, 99.9% Muslim, that's a pretty daring, pretty bold thing to do. And he has uh, spent jail time for his profession of faith, for passing out Bibles. And yet he remains completely bold, and he is very willing to count that cost and to suffer for Christ. Uh, but no matter what the case is, whether it's here or over there, uh, James wants to remind us, yes, you may very well suffer uh, at the hands of those who have power and influence in society, but I want you to know, Christ is coming back. You don't need to worry. You can be patient. So then, the return of Christ is intended to give us hope. It's intended to encourage us. It's intended to build us up and help us be patient. I think for a lot of us, when we think of Jesus' return, that immediately brings to mind uh, debates about when is he coming back, or how, or all the timeline of that. And certainly those are important things for us to know. We want to know when Jesus is coming back, how do we best pray, how do we best live in light of his return. But at the same time, the first thing we need to know about Christ's return is that it's intended to encourage us. It's intended to build us up. Let's look briefly at 1 Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4, I'll read this for us in verses 13 to 18. Paul says to the Thessalonians, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with those words. So Paul promises to the Thessalonian believers that Jesus is coming back. He's going to make all things right. He will return soon. And what does he say at the end? Therefore, encourage one another with those words. Christ's return should encourage us. It should give us hope. It should make us confident and patient in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution now. That's the first thing that Christ's return should do in our hearts. So James says again in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. So James gives us an example of what it looks like for us to be patient and for us to wait. He says, think about a farmer who waits so patiently for the rains to come. He waits patiently, but he also waits eagerly, and he really needs those rains to come. If the rains don't come, he may very well be destitute. He may lose his farm. He may not have anything to eat. He and his family depend on those rains so that the crops will come up. It's a precious fruit of the earth. It's something that he absolutely needs to live. It's um, necessary for his livelihood as a farmer. 
James says, in the same way, I want you to be patient for and to wait for Christ to come back. You can't control when he's coming back, just like we can't control when the rain comes. But we can eagerly wait and um, eagerly uh, be patient about his coming because we know that when Christ returns, that is our ultimate joy and our hope and our happiness and that there's nothing more important than that. Let, that, uh, let the return of Christ be so precious to you just like uh, those rains are so precious to the farmer because he needs them for his very livelihood. Let Christ's return be that, uh, that important to you, James says, just like the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. So let me ask us then, is our hope in Christ's return, or is our hope in here in this life? Are you setting your hopes and your expectations and your desires on things in this life or things in the life to come? Is the kingdom your delight and your joy, or are you putting your hope in things here on this earth? James says, be patient. Set your hope on Christ's return. He is coming back. And when you are patient and have that, uh, that desire first and foremost in your heart and in your mind, you'll be able to respond rightly to persecution and to suffering and wait patiently through in the midst of it. So in verse 8 of chapter 5, James says, You also be patient, just like the farmer he's been talking about. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James says, I want you to establish your hearts, strengthen them, build them on the foundation of the fact that Christ is coming back and that when he comes, he will make all things right. Establish our hearts in that truth. How do we do that? I think we do that by meditating on and reflecting on the fact that Christ is coming back soon. We want to be ready for him to return and setting that as our ultimate joy and our hope. We want to, as Colossians talks about, put our hearts and our minds, our eyes, on the things that are above, not on the things of this world. We want to remember and reflect on and meditate on Christ's return. Think of the glory of his coming. Think of the glory of his kingdom when all things will be made right, when there will be no crying, no pain, no tears, but ultimate and complete and everlasting joy in him. When all the wrongs that we have suffered, that others have suffered in this life, will be made right when Christ comes back. Establish our hearts to that truth. When you know that is true, and when you're confident in Christ's return, and when you're looking forward to his kingdom, you're ready then to respond to persecution in the right way. You're ready to be patient when you suffer. You're ready to respond with joy instead of losing heart. Because if we put our hope in this life instead of the life to come, if we don't establish our hearts in the truth of Christ's return, then I think we're going to respond in two different ways. We're either going to respond by taking vengeance on those who would uh, persecute us, or we're going to respond by giving in and giving up. We're either going to fight back in the wrong way and try to take vengeance because we, want, uh, what we, want not, we don't want our uh, things to be taken away from us. We don't want uh, our livelihood to be taken away from us. But, or, or we could respond by saying, uh, I'm just going to give up and give in. This is too hard. Either way, we're, when we do that, we're doing it because our hope is in this life. But when we set our hope in Christ and his return, when our joy is in him and we know that he is coming back to make all things right, we don't have to respond with vengeance nor do we have to respond by losing heart because we know that Christ is coming back. He's going to make all things right in the end. So James says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We just sang today, Jesus' coming is very soon. We need to expect it and be ready for it. I think it's probably very easy though for us to think, is he really coming back soon? I mean, it's been 2,000 years now. That seems like a long time, doesn't it? Uh, Is he really coming back very soon? Let's look at a few passages that I think address that question. When is Jesus coming back? Is he coming back soon? Let's look first at Matthew chapter 24. 
Matthew 24, 45 to 51. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, in a number of passages, this is one of them, makes it very clear that he is coming soon, but that soon might feel like a long time to us. It might feel like a delay to us. This servant says, my master is delayed. He hasn't come back. Uh, He's probably not coming back tonight. I can take it easy. I can give up. I don't have to be about his business. I don't have to be serving him right now because he's probably not coming back today. It's been a long time already. Jesus warned us that his soon might feel like a long time to us. And so we need to be ready and acknowledging that, yes, he is coming back soon, even if it feels like a long time for us. He could come back at any time. We want to be ready. Peter says uh, something very similar and builds on this in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 3. I'll read from verses 1 to 9 of Second Peter chapter 3. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter says a very similar thing. He says people are going to maybe even mock you and make fun of you because you say Jesus is coming back soon, but he hasn't come back yet. But he reminds us that's also the attitude of people in Noah's time. And then all of a sudden, as things were going on as normal, people were marrying and being given a marriage, eating and drinking, living normal lives, and then the flood came, destruction came on them. Peter says that's the same way it's going to be when Christ returns. We're going to be living normal lives, and those who aren't ready for Christ to come back, those who are not expecting him to come back, are going to live like things will always be as they have been, that they'll always go on as they have. But Peter says Christ is coming soon, and while uh, for the Lord a thousand days may seem like uh, a thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand years, we know that he is coming back soon. Christ is returning soon, and we need to be ready. While it may feel like a long time to us, Christ is going to come back soon, and we want to expect that and be ready for it. Now, how, do we, uh, how are we ready for Christ to come back? How do we live ready for him and expecting him to come at any time? I think we want to be faithful in uh, walking by faith. We want to be faithful in obeying him and serving him faithfully. And we also want to be taking his gospel to those around us and taking his gospel to the nations. Think of Matthew 24:14, which says that this gospel of the kingdom will come to all nations and then the end will come. We know that as the gospel goes out, as the, as the gospel reaches out to all the nations of the earth, all the people groups of the world, then the Lord will come. 
We don't know when that's going to be or exactly what that looks like, and we certainly can't set a time or a date on those things. But we know our job is to be ready for Christ to come back at any time, to be about his business, to be walking by faith, to be obeying him, and to be taking his gospel to those around us and to the nations. That's how we're ready for Christ to come back. That's how we wait expectantly for Christ. And that's how we wait then and and endure through suffering and through persecution as we wait for him. We can be patient because we know Christ is coming back soon, and we can be eager and zealous in serving him and walking by faith and obeying him because we know the time is short. So I think it's very important for us to remember then that we need to set our hope and establish our hearts on the truth that Christ is coming back. We need to be ready for that. We need to know that our response doesn't need to be taking vengeance nor does it need to be giving in and giving up because Christ is coming back. We can be patient. He's coming. His kingdom is coming, and we can wait for him to come. I think of uh, a teammate of ours who, in one city he used to live in, he was teaching at a university and then was kicked out of his job because of his profession of faith, because he was uh, speaking to other people about the gospel. The university administrators kicked him out of his, of his job, and he had to find another job. He could have responded by taking vengeance, by speaking badly about those who committed an injustice against him. He could have pushed back and really caused a stir. But instead, he remained faithful, he found another job, and continued to be a faithful witness there in his city. And I think that was a really important way for him to adorn the gospel and show the truth of the gospel. Instead of taking vengeance, he was faithful to do what the Lord had given him to do. Or I think of, for example, Adoniram Judson. Maybe many of you have heard of him. He was one of the first missionaries to be sent out from North America in the early 19th century. He went to Southeast Asia, Burma or Myanmar, and he suffered so much for the, for the gospel, uh, for the sake of Christ, uh, over a number of decades. But he was faithful to proclaim the gospel. Um, at one point, he was arrested and put in prison on, um, on false charges. He lost his wife and his one-year-old daughter in the course of just a few months. He suffered so much for the gospel, and yet his hope was in the life to come. His hope was in Christ and his return, and so he was able to persevere and endure through the suffering and through the persecution that he faced. He wrote down in his journal at one point, In joy or sorrow, health or pain, our course be onward still. We sow on Burma's barren plain, we reap on Zion's hill. He was waiting for that harvest that he would see one day in heaven, in the Lord's kingdom, and that enabled him to endure through pretty extreme suffering, pretty difficult persecution, because his hope was in Christ. His hope was in Christ's return. His hope was in the kingdom. So even though persecution may cause us to be dispossessed, we may lose things that we might think of as our rights, whether that's respect from others, whether that's a job. Uh, So many of our friends and brothers and sisters in North Africa have lost lost everything for the sake of the gospel. They've lost lost spouses. They've lost uh, children. They've lost jobs. They've lost uh, their standing in the community. So many things. And yet, while we may be dispossessed by persecution, we can put our hope in the fact that the kingdom we're inheriting can never be shaken. The kingdom we're inheriting can never be taken away. Moth and rust cannot destroy it. Thieves can't break in and steal it. But we're receiving a, a kingdom that is so much greater and so much, uh, worth so much more than anything we can have in this earth. So James says, put your hope in Christ's return. Establish your hearts on that truth and you will be ready to be patient and endure through suffering and through persecution. But then in verse 9, he takes what seems to be kind of a sharp left turn. In verse 9 of chapter 5, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
that seems rather strange. We've been talking about persecution. We've been talking about suffering. We've been talking about enduring through those things and Christ's return. And now he's talking about grumbling and complaining and upholding unity in the church. I think this is not a change of topic, but this is just an important point that James has in the midst of this. Why? Because uh, if you look back, if you look down at verse 10, James starts talking again about suffering and patience. And he talks again about Christ's return. And also in verse 9, James refers to Jesus' return as well when he says the judge is standing at the door. So I think what James is doing here is he's putting this important uh, command, this important instruction in the middle of his discussion about Christ's return, about suffering, about patience, because he wants us to know that we as believers, uh, that individual churches need to be building each other up as they face persecution, as they suffer together. Uh, That we as believers need to uphold the unity of the church so that we can build each other up. Hebrews 3 talks about how we need to exhort one another um, so that we will not be uh, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or Hebrews chapter 10 talks about how we need to continue to meet together so uh, so that we will be encouraged and all the more as we see the day approaching. All the more as we know that Christ is coming back and his return is soon. We need to build each other up in the truth We need to encourage each other and uphold the unity of the church so that we're ready to face persecution, so that we're ready to suffer together. In Colossians 2, 1 through 3, I'll read that very briefly. Paul makes the point that unity leads to maturity. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So that as, Paul says, as our hearts are knit together in love, we will reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding in Christ. As we are unified in the faith, we are able to build each other up in unity because we can exhort each other. We can encourage each other. We can speak to each other's lives. We can um, help each other and help each other not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin or not to take vengeance when we suffer injustice or not to give in when things go, uh, become difficult. Unity leads to maturity. Unity is an essential element in the mature, maturation of individual believers and of the whole church. So James says, I don't want you to be grumbling and complaining against one another because if you do that, you're destroying the unity of the church and you're going to uh, hinder the maturity of the church and you're not going to be ready to face persecution. Now we know that in some ways, nothing unites like a common enemy. But at the same time, persecution can be a catalyst for division in the church. Think about um, how people might have different ideas about how to respond to persecution. How do we respond to the pressure we're facing? There might be anxiety and fear and worry about what might happen to people and to a church. And that can really be an easy catalyst for division in the church. So James says, I want you to uphold unity as of first importance. If you want to be ready to suffer together, if you want to be ready to face persecution as believers, then you need to be unified. You need not to be grumbling against each other, complaining about each other, but instead you need to be building each other up. So James says, Christ's return is coming very soon. He's almost here. He's at the door. I want you to be ready. The judge is at the door. So let me ask all of us, are we ready for Christ to come back? Are we ready for him? Are we expecting him soon? For all of those of you who profess faith in Christ, who are believers in Christ, and who are showing through that, are you upholding the unity of the church so that you're ready for Christ to come back? Are you helping other believers in Christ be unified and uh, and matured in their faith so that they can suffer persecution, so that they can face difficulties in this life? Or 
Are you causing division in the church? Are you making the church susceptible to respond poorly to division, respond poorly to persecution and suffering? Are you ready for Christ to return? And if you have not put your faith in Christ, are you ready for him to come back? Because when he comes, he will bring about judgment for all those who have not put their trust in Christ. But we know that Jesus has come to suffer the punishment for all of us that all of us deserve because of our sin and our rebellion against God. And he holds out salvation. He holds out eternal life for everyone who will trust in Christ. So are you ready for Christ to come back? We don't want to doubt that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back soon. He's going to bring about relief from persecution and he's, only, he's also going to bring judgment upon sin and he's going to make all things right. So let's be ready for Christ to come back, not by causing division in the church, but instead by building each other up, not grumbling and complaining against one another, but building each other up. I think of a family that we know in North Africa. They have been believers for a long time and the husband has been a pastor in a church for a number of years. They have faced some persecution over the past couple of years. He's been called in for questioning by the police. Um, They've faced pressure, for sure, um, because of their profession of faith and because of his position in the church. And they have largely responded poorly to that persecution. It's really created a lot of anxiety and fear in them. And they've really cut themselves off from a lot of fellowship with other believers. And for them, the only hope they can really see is to get out of the country. Now, it may be a wise thing in some cases for people to leave if, they, if their lives are threatened. But at the same time, that's usually not the first thing we want to go to. Um, but for them, that's really the only solution they can see. And I think they've responded poorly to persecution because even years before they started to face this pressure from authorities, there was division in their church where they were working. Uh, there was a lot of backbiting, a lot of misunderstandings, and they were already kind of pulling out of fellowship with other believers. So that division in the church made them isolated, meant that they were not receiving exhortation and encouragement and um, the prayers and support of other believers. And I think that was a, real, a really significant factor in their not responding well to persecution. They weren't getting the encouragement and the help from other believers, and so they were ex- especially susceptible to the dangers of persecution, to the temptations of suffering, and they've responded poorly to it. So we want to be totally ready for suffering for persecution by, being, by upholding the unity of the church. So let me ask you, does how you interact with people online, does that uphold the unity of the church, or does that just criticize and backbite other believers? Or does how you talk about people behind their backs, is that, a, is that building them up, is that encouraging them, or is that just causing division in the church? Think carefully about how you respond to different people and how you uh, talk about other people. Make sure that you're doing it in a way that you're going to build them up. Because nine times out of ten, if we're talking about someone behind their backs, we're just causing division. What we need to do is just talk to that person directly. So think about how you're speaking about other believers in the church and how are you upholding unity? How are you helping the church get ready for suffering, get ready for persecution? In Galatians 5, um, Paul is very clear with the the Galatian churches there that they needed to stop biting and uh, complaining and grumbling against one another or else they were going to devour one another. He uses that word devour, kind of swallow up. But also in First Peter 5, Peter tells the believers that they need to be ready because Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's a very similar word. It's kind of a, the idea of eating up as opposed to swallowing up, but very, very similar ideas there. So remember then, if you are biting against and complaining against and, and grumbling against your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are devouring them and you're doing Satan's work for him. 
Satan wants to devour us. He wants to consume us and destroy us. But if we complain against and uh, cause division in the church, we're doing Satan's work for him. We're, get, we're, we're taking his job over for him. We need to be very careful about that and re- re- recognize that our job is to uphold unity so that we can be ready to face persecution. So then in verse 10, James comes back to his main uh, theme. He says again in verse 10, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Remember that you are not the first people, James says, to suffer persecution, to suffer for your uh, profession of faith, to suffer for doing what is right. He says in verse, uh, in verse 10 there, those who spoke in the name of the Lord, those prophets, suffered for what they did. James says this isn't just theoretical. Uh, think of all the other people who suffered for proclaiming the gospel, for speaking uh, in the name of the Lord, for speaking the word of the Lord. Think about somebody like Jeremiah, who consistently proclaimed the messages that the Lord gave him, and yet he suffered so much for it at the hands of God's people. Um, He was called the weeping prophet because of his burden for God's people, for Judah, and how they were going to be brought out into exile. And yet at the same time, um, God's people didn't respond in the right way. James, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah uh, suffered for speaking the word of the Lord at the hands of God's people who should have been responding rightly to it. So James says, remember, there are so many others who have done this as well. Remember that they have suffered too, that they have uh, endured for speaking the word of the Lord, and they didn't assume that if they were doing what was right, that things were going to be easy for them. They didn't assume or find it strange. They didn't find it strange that they were going to suffer for speaking the word of the Lord. No, they assumed that that was the case, and they were ready for it, and they faithfully served God, did what was right, and set their hope on the heavenly city. Think of Hebrews 11 and all those faithful believers who by faith obeyed God, who walked in obedience to what the Lord gave them to do and suffered for it. But at the same time, uh, what what does the writer of Hebrews say? They were looking forward to a heavenly city. Their hope was not in this life, not in this world. Their hope was in the eternal city, the heavenly city, and so they could be faithful and persevere and they could be patient in the midst of persecution. James says, remember those stories. Know the stories of Scripture and how people have suffered and endured and remember how the Lord has been faithful to them and remember how his promise remains true. It remains firm. It will be fulfilled in the end. I think also we should remember the stories of church history. Remember other people who have been faithful throughout the centuries and who, whom the Lord has been faithful to as well. Let's remember those stories of, of the Lord's faithfulness in the midst of suffering and let's do the same, James says. He says in verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Now, that word blessed, we use a lot, but um, it's important for us to remember what does it mean for us to be blessed. I think maybe the best way we can define that word is to say to be blessed is to be favored by God's grace, and so you're truly happy. You're truly happy because the Lord is bestowing his favor and his grace upon you, and you can respond brightly to all the situations that you face in this life. It's similar to what James says in chapter 1, verse 12 where he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's no greater blessing than that, no greater grace that we could receive than that we would know that the Lord is upholding us and strengthening us to endure persecution, to endure suffering, so that we will one day receive the crown of life. We'll one day receive eternal life in Christ. We are one day going to inherit, as believers, the kingdom of God. And there's nothing greater than that. There's no greater blessing than that. And certainly, uh, those of us who can respond in that way, by God's grace, are truly happy. That's true happiness. When we can know the Lord is doing his work in us to enable us to persevere and endure so that we can be ready as we face difficulties in this life. So James says, you've seen that those people are blessed 
and how they've remained steadfast, and the Lord has done a work of grace in them, and they've been truly happy despite their suffering and their difficulties in life. He says, and you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and how you, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He says, take one example specifically. Think about Job and how Job suffered so much. In one day or just in a short period of time, Job lost almost everything. He lost his children. He lost all his possessions. He lost his health. And yet Job did not sin in cursing God, but instead he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He was able to respond rightly and set his hope on things to come, set his hope on, on God and on his faithfulness. Jim says, I want you to know and to respond rightly to persecution uh, by setting your hope on the compassionate and merciful God. What does James say, say there at the end of verse 11? He says, you know that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Just as he had mercy on Job and uh, provided Job with twice what he had before he suffered so much, the Lord will provide you with all that you need in this life and in the life to come. What does Jesus tell us? He says that everyone who has given up houses or fathers or mothers or children or uh, all sorts of things in this life will not fail to receive a hundred times in this life and in the life to come. The Lord will provide us with all that we need in this life and in the life to come, just like he did with Job, just like he does with others. Our hope now can be firm and steadfast in God's faithfulness because we know that he is compassionate and merciful. He is full of tenderness and kindness and care for his people. The Lord will not forget us. There's that very important verse in Romans 8, that if the Lord has not uh, withheld his only son from us, he will surely give us everything that we need along with him. The Lord will provide us with all that we need at the right time because he has given us his own son to pay the penalty for our sins. He will certainly continue to be faithful and steadfast and unchanging. The Lord's character does not change. It might feel like when we're suffering, when we're being persecuted, when things are difficult, that the Lord has somehow changed or that he's somehow forgotten us. James says, remember, the Lord is full of compassion. He is merciful. Just as he's been faithful to all those people throughout church history, all those stories that you see in scripture, just as he was faithful to Job in his suffering, he will be faithful to you as well. So you can remember that his promises are sure, that Christ is coming soon, and that you can put your hope in that. Just as the Lord told Moses that he is compassionate and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, uh, that is uh, in many ways the core of who God is and his character and, his, um, and who he is. And we can take confidence and hope in that fact and who God is. So then, if that righteous judge, who is also compassionate and merciful and good and faithful and who keeps his promises, if he is coming back, coming back to bring us relief and to bring us reward at the end, why would we need to grow impatient? Why, why would we not need to wait a little bit longer to know that he is coming back and he is going to make all things right in the end? Why would we cause division instead of building each other up so we can be ready for him to come back? Why would we lose heart? Or why would we take vengeance? James says, you don't need to do that. Be patient. The Lord is coming back soon, and you can set your hope on that and be confident in that truth. Let's look at one final passage in Psalm 37, which really kind of expresses in another way this same hope. David is going to express the same hope that James has been expressing in chapter 5. I'll read a few verses from Psalm 37. David says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. We can have confidence that we will one day inherit the kingdom. We can have confidence that one day Christ is coming back. And we don't need to worry about the sufferings and the persecutions we face in this life. They will be difficult, and we're going to need help from our brothers and sisters. But as we wait patiently for Christ to come back, as we're ready for him, and we know that he's coming soon, and as we're upholding the unity of the church and exhorting each other and building each other up, we will be, by God's grace, ready to face that. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for the promise and for the truth that Jesus is coming back and that he's coming back soon. I pray that we would not be uh, lulled into apathy or into doubt that he is coming back soon, but we would expect him every day and serve you faithfully as a result, Lord. And we pray that that hope, that truth, would go down deep in our hearts, Lord, so that we could respond rightly to the sufferings and the persecutions that we face in this life, Lord, with patience, knowing that our hope is coming and your kingdom is worth more than everything and anything else, Lord. We thank you so much and pray that you'd bear fruit in each of our hearts today. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.